Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. Andy Zoden here. Our team is made up of three-time French Open champion, Match Vlander and Match, you are on the call for Eurosport. You're in London right now. You couldn't even get quite all the way to Paris, but you'll be calling the event from London. Are you excited about this year's French Open? I am, actually. Yes, I am. I think that playing uh, in colder temperatures is going to make it more interesting. I think Rafa is going to struggle a little bit. I think Novak is the favorite to win it because of the heavier conditions, but uh, in general, just great to see uh, the guys are really showing up after the U.S. Open, which was great, and uh, to see Rafa back in action is unbelievable. Johnny Levine joins us as well, two-time All-American from the University of Texas. Johnny made it to the quarterfinals of the French in 89 in the doubles with Eric Corita. Uh, Johnny, how's it going? You're in much better weather conditions than they are out in Europe. You're in Phoenix, Arizona. How you doing? Doing great, Andy. Uh, excited to have Robin on the show today. And uh, it's pretty hot still in Phoenix. I think we have another maybe week or so, and then we'll, we'll come into our great weather. So looking forward to that for sure. And we are joined, as you just mentioned, by Robin Soderling, who had a couple of great runs at this French Open in 2009-2010. And, Matt, you described the weather conditions as heavy, as chilly, as wet. Sounds a lot like a day in 2009 when Robin Soderling went out and took the racket out of Rafael Nadal's hands and became the first player to beat him at Roland Garros. Robin, I don't think that that win surprised you based on the interviews that I remember after that match, but just talk about that experience of going out there against a guy that you had had good success against you guys had had a little bit of chippiness in your matches prior to that one, but talk about that day beating Rafael Nadal in 2009 at Roland Garros. Well, of course, it was a great match, and I remember going into that match, I felt, as you said, I felt pretty confident, and I felt like it was I was in a good situation because I really felt that I had nothing really to lose. Uh, no, one, no one really expected me to, to, uh, to win, and I felt that I was playing well, so I could go. I could step on a court and, and play really freely. It was a great day, and I remember I told myself I just have to take my chances. I have to play even more aggressive than than I normally did. And that day, you know, everything worked out. And it was also really good because I got up a break pretty early in the first set, and I won the first uh, first set fairly easy, and that also helped me a lot to to kind of even relax even more. Unbelievable. I watched Andy Murray in the Australian Open a couple of years prior to this match trying to hit cross-court two-handed backhands really hard to Rafael Nadal's forehand. 
And it didn't work out. Rafael won that match. And then Robin, you did that. Why did you come up with the tactics that were so successful, hitting hard to his forehand? Or am I just dreaming? No, you're right. But it was uh, kind of more because I knew he would play a lot of uh, heavy topspin uh, cross-court forehands. And I felt that I could not just, you know, uh, hit my back and down the line all the time. So it was kind of more that I didn't have a choice because he, he plays it so well. You know, he, he plays his, his foreign with such a good angle. So it was really tough for me to run around and hit my foreign. So I just felt like I had to hit hit it hard and hit it deep and, uh, yeah, deep down to his foreign. And I think, you know, Rafa is one of the best uh, foreigns in the world, especially when he's got a little bit extra time but if you can if you can be able to hit flat and deep to his foreign, you know that's sometimes where he he's been struggling a little bit in the past. Robin, let me ask you this: you know, there, there's people that have said that that might be one of the greatest upsets in tennis history. You know, I know you were when you played, you had a lot of confidence and you believed you could beat the great guys, and and you did. Um, do you feel that it was one of the greatest upsets in the history of tennis, or not? Well, maybe not uh, straight after the match, but the thing is, the when the years went on, you know, it's it's just amazing. He won it twelve times, I think, now. So for every year, maybe the the victory has been more and more successful, and it's been a bigger and bigger upset, I think. Uh, but I always say that, you know, it it says it says a little bit more about Rafa than, uh, than about me, you know, him winning 12 French Opens, you know, only lost two times. It was also a, a really strange situation for me because I remember straight after the match, looking up to my, uh, my box and the people there, they were all sharing like I just won the tournament. And I remember only a couple of seconds after winning the match point, I told myself like, okay, relax this was not the finals this was just the fourth round I have another match to play in two days I can't be too happy you know I because I felt like I really didn't want to be you know one of those guys beating a top player um, and then just to lose in the in the next round so I'm really happy that I was able to you know keep my focus and uh, and keep on playing well throughout the whole tournament and then moving on from that, thinking about, you know, that 09 final playing Federer, like you said, you know, you wanted to win the tournament. And that was the way your mindset was. You, you weren't satisfied with just the Nadal victory. When you think back to that final, the 09 final against Federer, you lost that, obviously. And then you played Nadal in, in, in 2010 in the final. Can you give us an idea of which final you had more confidence thinking that you could win the match? Was there one over another? Um, not really. You know, both those finals was really tough for me. I think in 09 because of maybe I think I wasn't mentally really ready to win it. Um, it was all of a sudden, you know, I was in the final of a Grand Slam and it all happened so fast. And I played against Roger. He played, I don't know how many Grand Slam finals before and he was so much more comfortable in that situation I think and the year after you know I was more mentally ready but I remember I was more physically tired that year uh, I remember um, after my semi-finals against uh, Burdich uh, I was really tired and I, I kind of felt a little bit that I didn't didn't really have the energy to be able to beat Rafa in the best of five set in the final that year. 
it was such a great run, Robin, 2009 and 2010. And it just seemed like you were on the verge of starting to win some majors. You were right on the cusp. You were beating the best players in the world. You were, you're having good success against the Nadals and the Federers of the world. And then suddenly the guy's got mono. He's not going to play Wimbledon this year. Some things are going on and he's going to take a little time away from the game. And suddenly it just seemed like it was over. Talk about how, how that all sort of evolved to where you got sick, you pulled out of a couple of tournaments, and then we didn't really see or hear much from you again. And a career that seemed that it was on the verge of being potentially a multiple Grand Slam champion type career suddenly vanished in the in the seemingly in the blink of an eye. Yeah, I mean uh, that was I had a few really tough years. Uh, I was struggling a lot with my health and. And of course, you know, I played my last match when I was only 27. You know, in my mind, I wanted to to keep on playing. And as you said, I felt that, you know, maybe I wasn't the best player in the world, but at least I felt that in every Grand Slam, I had a chance to win it. If if I compared it to a couple of years earlier, you know, I was maybe in the Grand Slam to have a good run. Maybe, you know, I thought I could reach third, fourth, or maybe quarterfinals, but Every time I played a big tournament, I felt that at least I had a chance to win it. You know, I knew I could beat all the players. But I think a few months before before I played my last match in Boston, you know, I started to feel feel different. You know, I was really, really tired. I, was, I wasn't enjoying it as much. You know, I had a lot of infections, uh, sore throat, a cold for a week. Then I felt better for a while and then another cold. And then I got the mono and when I got the mono and I kept playing with it for a few weeks and it was just, you know, that was it for me. I remember straight after the finals in Boston, you know, I've been, I had been playing really well that week. I won the tournament, but I still, I still didn't feel very well. And I remember straight after the finals, when I relaxed, it all came up and, um, and it was such a tough time. You know, I, I tried to come back so many times and uh, every time I had setbacks and then, I just couldn't do it. And then I, I decided to retire a few years later, but I wish that I, I wish that I would have taken it a little bit more easy. I wish that I would just maybe rested fully for six months or a year and not trying to come back every second. My, as soon as I started to feel a bit better, I tried to train, I tried to practice and I tried to come back all the time and, and I had setbacks all the time. So it took many years before I fully recover. Mm. Yeah, well, well, let me um, bring uh, Robin back to a Davis Cup match that uh, you played in Buenos Aires against David Nalbanian. Um, I was the Davis Cup captain for Sweden, which was most probably the most fun I've ever had in professional tennis uh, and in Davis Cup. And um, you are playing David Nalbanian. Uh, Argentinians are up 2-1 against Sweden. And we're about 4-3, I think, in the fifth set. And you come up to me and you say, I really need an injury timeout now because I have a really, really big blister on my, somewhere on your foot. Tell me, what, what, what were you thinking then, Robin? And, and do you remember this situation? I don't really remember. I remember it was a really tough match. And I remember Diego Maradona was in the, in the <laughs> crowd screaming a lot giving us the finger a couple of times. 
uh, it was a tough match, uh, I remember, and I was so frustrated I lost that match. I think I lost 7-5 in the fifth or something. Yes, yeah. And, you know, I just felt that straight after the match, I really wanted to go home in Swe- to Sweden again because it was tough. It was for sure different from all the other matches I played. The crowd was it, was, it felt like the crowd was not a tennis crowd. It was more of a soccer or, you know, football crowd, European football crowd. They were screaming a lot. So what happened here is that you took an injury timeout at about 4-3 in the fifth set. Um, Diego Maradona is in the crown, uh, in the crowd, and they were calling you uh, burro, burro, which is donkey. Uh, and you pull your sock off your shoe and you say I have a, a big blister and I said that's not even a that's a small blister I and you said I need a break so now <laughs> it's 4-3 in the fifth set and the referee suddenly says warning Argentina and I stand up and I said what do you mean warning Argentina and David Nalbandian suddenly pissed in a bottle on the court <laughs> between his legs and he got a warning, okay? So you are, we are laughing. You might not be laughing. I'm laughing. And you told me before the match, Matt, tell me only one thing in the changeovers, which is tell me to not throw the ball too far in front on my first serve. That's it. Kasta inte bollen for long fram. Okay, so that's all. That's all you told me to tell you. So we're sitting there. We got a three-minute timeout. And I asked Joachim Nyström behind me. I said, is there anything you want to say to Robin? And Joke says, uh, Robin, don't throw the ball too far in front on your first serve. And you, Robin, look at me, okay, with these steely eyes. <laughs> Four, three in the fifth set. And you say... Olof Palme has been shot. Olof Palme is the greatest social democratic politician in <laughs> Swedish history. And you look at me, you say, Olof Palme has been shot. He was shot in 1986. 20 years later, we're playing this match. So I'm wondering, why did that come into your mind? Like the sense of humor in that moment was just the funniest thing. Me and Newstrom. We were dying. Robin, why? What happened? Well, I think I was just trying to tell him that, uh, you know, me throwing the, tossing the ball too far, too far away was just old news. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but Palme, I mean, you, you weren't even born when Palme was shot. (laughs) I did a lot of crazy, crazy things on, on court during my career and especially in those intense moments. And now when you say it, I remember Nalbani peeing. Uh, he didn't even go to the toilet, you know. He was just <laughs> peeing during the changeover and probably he was tired. I was tired. If, if I may, Robin, as we go into this French Open 2020, uh, lots of extenuating circumstances surrounding this tournament. We saw finally a breakthrough at the U.S. Open with Dominique Team win his first major. When you look at this young crop of players, uh, the Stefanos Tsitsipas of the world, the Nick Kyrgios's of the world, Teams, Varev, and this, this crop of players, who are you a fan of? Who do you look at and think, yeah, this is the guy that I, I really would pay money to go see that I think is going to be the next guy that's going to maybe collect a handful of these trophies? Um. There's a few of them, you know, I would say uh, you mentioned Tsitsipas, he's a great player and I think mentally, even though he's still young, he's mentally uh, really 
really good and he has a great game. But I also like uh, Chapovalov's game. I really, I said it for for a few years now, for a couple of years, that he's gonna do really well when he can get his game together and and keep his consistency consistency a little bit better. He's gonna do extremely well. Uh, and of course, team and there's there's a lot of good young players coming up. But the thing is, you know, we have three of the best players or maybe the three best players in the history of tennis playing at the same time. Um, and then I hear a lot of people saying that, oh, there's, there's uh, no new players coming up. And I think they are, uh, there is. It's just that there are normal top players. You know, what we've seen for the last decade or even almost two decades, it's, it's something that we will probably never see again in, in, in men's or, or win, women's tennis, at least in... Uh, at least not in our lifetime. Robin, um, I kid, I'm most probably the most surprised ever to see and hear and know that you have a company that promotes tennis, strings, balls, uh, paddle tennis. Yes. And I, I run a club in Idaho, in Haley, Idaho, called Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And we play with your Tennis ball is called the RS, Robin Sirling Tennis, Black Edition. It's a regular C-level tennis ball. And when you, Andy, you know about all about this. In Denver, you play with high-altitude balls. I, I, I want some of these RSs for sure. They're not sensitive. But these tennis balls that Robin has made make people feel like they're playing at sea level. You can spin it. Uh, it doesn't fly, even though it's at 6,000 feet. And uh, so my question to you, Robin, is how, how did you come up with the two different kinds of balls? You have a black edition of a tennis ball. You have a tour edition of a tennis ball. Why would you get into the, to, to that, that kind of part of tennis? I mean, I, was, I really liked and I was really interested in, in the materials when I played. And I, I felt that the better I became, the, the smaller the margins became, you know. So I started to care more and more about the materials. And then... You know, a few years after I retired, I um, I still wanted to do something uh, in tennis. I just didn't know what. And then I decided to to try to see if I could develop a, a tennis ball that I felt was the best ball in the world. Uh, and I'm pretty happy now that I didn't know back then how much work it would take. It took me maybe, you know, one and a half year before I finally had the, had the finished product. And then, I, you know... After that, I started to give it out to some friends and some top players to try it. And the feedback was great. You know, they all liked it. And then one of my best, best friends said, so what are you going to do now? I think you should start a company. And I didn't know anything about starting a company, but that's how it started. And, uh, you know, as you said, now now we're doing different products as well, you know, grips and strings and also paddle rackets, uh, paddle balls. So company has been growing a lot you know it's it's great to still be in the tennis world even though i'm not playing or, or coaching anymore but it's i like it a lot i'm just curious if you ever get out and hit hit the ball anymore i do uh i started to hit um you know three four times a week now wow. i actually broke my foot three or four months ago um, so the whole summer I was in a cast, you know, I couldn't play anything, but uh, it's, it's much better now. So now I started to play and it's great. You know, I love it. And it's a good way to keep in shape also, you know, um, I don't have the, 
I don't have the, um, the energy to, to go to the gym and, or I don't have the desire to go to the gym, but just going out, hit the, hit some balls for an hour or two every, every other day. It's just, it's just a great way to, to stay in shape. And it's, I still love it a lot. I, I love it. I love it. And, and you guys, Andy and Johnny, Robin was most probably um, the most um, in my face direct player uh, at a young age. And I remember going to a Davis Cup match once and he looked at me. I took my shirt off and he says, oh, it looks like you've been going to the gym, Matt. <laughs> I have, did not have one single muscle on my body. Robin, you're the one that kind of, you were never rude, but you were very honest and direct. You, you definitely, Robin, had a slightly different style and demeanor than, say, Borg, Vlander, and Edberg. Let's just, let's just say that. But my question to you is, because Matt's is way too humble, and Johnny and I get tired of it. So how about you telling us, when you were a kid growing up in Sweden, what kind of an influence and an effect these guys, Borg, Vlander, and Edberg, had on the Swedish juniors? And when you were growing up, how much did you guys look up to them and idolize them? A lot. You know, that's, that's basically why I started to play tennis. You know, I remember I didn't have one idol. I, um, I watched a lot of tennis and I watched all the Swede and Swedes. And the good thing was that, you know, every week there was at least one or two Swedes that were doing well. You know, they were always a Swede in the quarterfinals, semifinals, or even winning the tournament, even the bigger tournament. So there was always someone for me to share on. And, and I think that helped. That's, that's what we lack a little bit now in, in, in tennis in Sweden. You know, we don't have any role models for the kids. We don't have a top player. Um, and, and I think that's why it's, more difficult to attract the, the young boys and girls to tennis instead of other sports. You know, in the 80s, 90s, in the beginning of the, the 2000, you know, it was so easy. All the kids, they wanted to start playing tennis because we had so many good players and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of tennis in the media. They showed tennis on TV and it makes a big difference. Well, I, again, I want to I thank you so much for joining us on kickserveradio.com and Matt's. Uh, hats off to you again for bringing on another great guy and Robin for folks that would maybe like to order your tennis balls or maybe just find out more about your company where do they go um, we, we sell in uh, in some 40 45 countries all over the world um, sports stores clubs uh, but they could just go to visit my website it's rs-tennis.com they will see all, all our products there he was a two-time French Open finalist, and as the French Open has just started and Matt Svielander will be on the call for Eurosport, we thank Robin Soderling so much for, after all these years, coming on with us to reminisce about some of the great times when he was absolutely flashing through the Pro Tour like a comet, and that, that career was cut way too short. But, Robin, thanks so much for joining us. We really enjoy reminiscing about your, your best days in tennis, which were 2009 and 2010. Here we are 10 years later. Thank you so much. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's Vlander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, Seven-time Grand Slam champion, Matt Spielander, now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. 
They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVLanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Welcome back, everybody, to Tennis Across America. I'm so pleased to be joined by Joe Wallen. She is the USTA's Director of Adult Competition and also the Tournament Director of the U.S. Open Wheelchair. And Joe, it's so great to have you on Tennis Across America, part of kickserveradio.com, to talk a little wheelchair tennis. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity to spread the good word of wheelchair tennis. So many great champions in the sport, so many multiple-time Grand Slam champions, the most recent at the 2020 U.S. Open, Shingo Cunieta, and you were giving me his numbers, and I mean, those things are right alongside Roger Federer. Yeah, I mean, he was going for his 24th um, singles t- Grand Slam title this year as well, which obviously Serena was going for, and Serena didn't quite get, and uh, Shingo did. Um, and then he also outdid Esther Vigier on that too. So he was one more than her on Grand Slam singles titles. So really very awesome numbers for these players, you know, and we just don't hear enough about them and give them enough credit for what they do for the sport of tennis. I've been fortunate enough to MC a couple of wheelchair tennis award ceremonies. And every time I leave one of those, I'm so incredibly inspired by these athletes. Do you sense some growth in popularity? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely growing. And unfortunately, it's probably not growing in the US as quick as it's growing elsewhere, right? So obviously, in Japan, it's been massive. I mean, we had supposed to have the Paralympics this year, which is going to obviously be scheduled for next year. Um, And then it seems after the Paralympics in those countries like London had it, it, it grows a lot more in popularity. And as you said, these athletes are inspirational but they don't think they are. They just want to be known as a great athlete. But when you put the stories in and you actually see what they've had to go through in their life, like we may look at a Serena or a Roger and say, wow, they've had to overcome some pretty big obstacles. Well, it's nothing compared to these athletes. We've had the luxury of having at the national campus, Francis TFO got on a chair, right? It was probably one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life because this guy is an amazing athlete He could not push to a ball and he looked like a total beginner, right? And so when you actually watch these players and you see their technique and you see them hit an inverted backhand and you see them move and you see how they play and then you actually put the able-bodied players in the chair and they can't even move, you realize how amazing these athletes really are and how amazing they are as athletes. You say that in the United States, wheelchair tennis isn't growing and gaining in popularity as much as it is in some of the other countries. What are you trying to do to put 
an infrastructure in place to change that, Joe? It's hard enough to find kids. I mean, we talk about 10 and unders, right? And getting more kids to play. Well, you've tried to find someone that's, you know, disabled. It's even harder to find. So it's not like you can just go be like, hey, you know, how do we find these kids that play in chairs? So when we work with disabled sports groups, that's one way to really get them and to engage them. So it's building, we've really spent a lot of time building the base of wheelchair tennis. Um, and then really the pinnacle is the highest level. Your David Wagner's, your Nick Taylor's, your Dana Matheson's, but we've got to have that base ready to go. So we've really spent the last four years trying to grow that base. Joe, you wear many hats with USTA, again, director of adult competition, uh, and, and incredibly importantly, the tournament director for the U.S. Open Wheelchair event. And what those players do is inspirational and what you all do is inspirational. Thank you so much for being a part of Tennis Across America. And hopefully this is something that we're able to do with you from time to time. And and you'll keep us posted on uh, all of the progress that you guys are making. Yeah, hopefully hopefully you'll have me back so we can keep this conversation and get it more mainstream. And welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. My goodness, how much fun was it? To catch up with Robin Soderling, this is KickServeRadio.com. We are part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Of course, I'm joined by the great Mats Vlander, seven-time Grand Slam champion, former number one in the world, as well as former two-time All-American at the University of Texas, Johnny Levine. And as we move toward this French Open and we talk to a guy like Robin Soderling, it makes you realize, Mats, how at any given day, on any given Sunday, if you will, uh, a guy can come out of nowhere like Robin did on that fateful day for Rafael Nadal in 2009. And we mentioned the fact that the conditions were a little weird that day. They were heavy, they were wet. And you kind of made the comment that that may be what we're in store for in this year's French Open. Does that then potentially set up a situation where we may see similar types of upsets? I actually believe that. Yes, I do. I mean, the fact that Rafael Nadal is going for his 13th French Open is just incredible. I won three of them, and I felt like I played my best tennis every year that I went there, but only went, only made five finals. And he still is the favorite, although over the 12 times that he's won, he's most probably only played two out of seven matches where he has had to fight uh, to win the match. Um, the other five, he wins in the locker room. And I think this year, being this late in the season, being a little bit colder, I think every player that plays him feels maybe that they can't beat him, but at least that they can give him a, give him a, a, um, a challenge. And I think that's what Robin did. That's what he so nicely put, that he thought he was playing well and he had a chance and he knew how to play him. So I think for Rafa... This is a horrible situation if he wants to win the tournament. Every player is going to get him um, sort of through three or four hours of play court tennis, heavy, the ball doesn't spin. And by the time he gets to the semis, which is, you know, Dominic Thiem or whoever, finals, Novak Djokovic, his confidence will not be the same. And I I think he can still win it for sure, but it's a huge difference for Rafael Nadal in terms of confidence when the ball doesn't spin and bounce that the way it does in May, June. Johnny, Matt's makes a good point, and I didn't really think of it in these terms, but he did win the tournament three times, but he's right. He only made five finals, and yet we still hold him in, in pretty high esteem and high respect. Should we start to temper that a little in lieu of the fact that the guy only got to the French final five times? 
Well, uh, you know, I, I don't have any words for it because when you sit there <laughs> and you say three-time French Open champion, it's just hard to it, – it's, it's, you know, you think of Nadal winning 12 and you think of some of these other amazing champions like Sampras and, and Federer winning, you know, eight times one slam – it 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 try it, it kind of does diminish what Matts did, but right. but it doesn't because be, it it doesn't. It kind of does. Let's well no, I mean Google won it three times. I mean Google won it three times. I mean, Guys, you don't right. get it though. You don't, Johnny, Johnny, <laughs> let, let, Johnny. Let me ask you a question. You, what tournament did you play at either twelve and under or fourteen and under when you looked at the draw and you said there is no chance in hell that I am losing to any of these kids? I might play three sets. Did you play those tournaments or not? You know what? My problem, I don't know if it was a problem, but I, I was always underconfident. I mean, I, I did win a lot of junior tournaments, especially here in the Southwest. There but you go. Same thing. I just, okay, okay, yeah. I never went into that. I mean, I, I it seemed like Robin was a super confident guy. I mean, this guy would go on that. He, he looked like it. Like, he didn't think he was going to lose. I was a little surprised when he said, you know, in the finals of those two terms, I know he was tired in 2010, but in 09, I don't think he believed he said it. I mean, he basically didn't believe he could beat Federer, right. which, which surprised me, you know, but Andy, what are your thoughts on the three, on the five finals, three Frenches? I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'm impressed. I guess Matt's did win on all three surfaces a couple of times and he was the only player ever to win uh, four majors before his 21st birthday. So I guess, I guess if you put it in those terms, I, yeah, not bad. <laughs> not, not bad, bad not bad. Although no. he did say that when we talked about him walking the grounds of the French Open and what's it like to be a three-time champion, five-time finalist, he did say that it used to be a lot better until Nadal came around and now he's like, a, you know, <laughs> what does that make us, Andy? What does Rafa that do kind of us? put him in his place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, I mean, when you add it up, Johnny, between the three of us, we've got seven majors. There you that's go. It, that's it. Love uh, it. Let, 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 me, let me bring to your attention, uh, gentlemen, um, an interesting uh, change this year. So I won in 82, 85, 88, every third year. Those three years, the French Open was played with pen balls. Pen balls were faster, quicker. They bounced higher. You could spin them more. And I love those balls. And in 83, I lost to Yannick Noah in the finals. And we played with something different. I think it was the Dunlop racing ball that was uh, heavier, harder, couldn't spin it. This year at the French Open, they've gone away from the Babolat ball that Rafael Nadal absolutely loved. They're now playing with a Wilson ball. Now, the Wilson ball is going to be heavier. And Rafa has already said in a press conference a couple of days ago that he hopes his shoulder isn't going to fall out of its socket. So why would they do that? I mean, are we talking about money? Are we talking about Wilson, an American company, at the French Open? Why on earth would they risk it to, to uh, not have as great a tennis quality by changing the ball? I have no idea. One of the questions that we started the segment with was, are the conditions ripe for an upset? And the only thing that you referenced in answering that question was how it would affect Rafael Nadal. So is really the only upset on the board if Nadal loses, or does Novak Djokovic figure into that equation as well? No, I actually think if Novak loses, it's a bigger upset than Rafa loses, to be honest. I think Novak, um, with what happened in New York, 
Um, and winning Rome, I think he is feeling, okay, guys, I'm going to show you all that I am not the, the man that I was in New York. I'm not hitting balls at the line umpires. I'm not that frustrated. I'm not angry. I am actually not going to lose in a three out of five set match to anyone here in Paris. So if Novak gets upset, that's the biggest upset. If Rafa gets up, uh, upset by somebody, I think that's down to Rafa not having enough matches under his belt, enough titles under his belt, uh, the different tennis ball, the different temperatures. But to beat Novak, that's really the big upset. Rafa already lost to Diego Schwartzman in Rome. He can lose to a lot of players in this tournament because it's heavier. And you have guys like Yannick Sinner, who hits the ball hard and flat. You got guys like Matteo Berrettini, hits the ball hard and flat, especially on the backhand side. So there's a lot of players that I think feel that Rafa's spin is not going to hurt me. And I am in a ball striking con uh, contest with Rafa. And I think they're all back themselves. They don't think Rafa hits the ball that great. They just think that he, what he does to the ball on clay is um, superhuman and they can't deal with it. But in terms of hitting flat ground strokes, I think 50 players in the world actually will, will sort of match themselves to beat Rafa. So I think he's in big, big, big trouble. Novak, no. Novak will win this event. I have to jump in here, Matt, and, uh, and disagree with you. Good. Matt, I think you're missing one thing on this, on this Rafa Nadal playing these other players. You know, he, he does have that awe factor, and people know that he's won that thing 12 times, and I think that's a huge edge. Even just walking on the court, I think people are going to, you know, have a hard time believing that they can really beat him. So I think he's got that going for him in a year that, like you said, maybe he's not the clear-cut favorite, but that, that will give him an edge. And when you look at the draw, I mean, he's got Evans in the round of 16. I mean, I, that's not going to be a problem. He doesn't really have anyone a threat in the early first or second round. He could potentially play Fognini. Now, Fognini definitely could beat him, has beaten him, has a good record against him, but Fognini hasn't been playing great. So assuming he gets by him, you know, he doesn't really have, you know, he's got Goffin. Goffin plays center in the first round. So Goffin could give him a hard time, but I, I just – I don't see that happening. Although, although, you know, he is in the quarter with Zvera, so that could be a tough match. And then the semi could be team, but these guys have to really believe that they can beat him. And I don't know that they can, I don't know that they believe that they can beat him on this dirt at the French open. All right. We're, I'm, I'm going to let you guys go back to your corners and, and sort of uh, take a breather here. We're going to take a break, but I, th I just think that it's interesting. A, that, that Johnny Levine pronounces maybe one out of every four players' names correctly. So I think that that's to be noted. And secondly, the fact that he's got Evans in the round of 16, like it's just automatic. I find that to be interesting as well. All right, you're listening to KickServeRadio.com. I'm going to let Matt's have the first word in the next segment to come back to rebut what Johnny just said. Don't go away. Lots more to get to. These guys are getting after each other. I'm just staying out of the way. I'm Andy Zoden. I'm with Matt's Vlander and Johnny Levine. This is KickServeRadio.com, a part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Don't go away. We'll be right back. How often do we hear news stories about tech giants violating and restricting access to ideas and philosophies that they don't agree with? 
That's why you should choose SquadPod. SquadPod is a private communication team. It is a collaboration platform for businesses, schools, nonprofits, and athletes. SquadPod has all the important features of other communication, chat, and video apps, but it's 100% unique in its commitment to protecting your privacy and your business. SquadPod doesn't monitor or censor any of your conversations. They don't create customer profiles or use any of your content for AI training or facial recognition. They don't sell or share any of your information with anyone. SquadPod is 100% made, stored, and operated in the United States. So join us and visit squadpod.com forward slash Kixer to learn much more. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. As we left to go to the break, Johnny Levine, an American tennis player, an American professional tennis player, had the audacity to take issue with Mats Vlander, a five-time, we established it earlier, a five-time finalist, three-time champion at the French Open. And Mats, Johnny tells you that he, he takes issue with uh, the fact that you don't think that Rafa is the biggest favorite of this thing. He thinks he absolutely is. Johnny had... Uh, he had a guy like Evans, you know, straight through to the round of 16, like he was getting a bye to that round, like he had some kind of a wild card to the round of 16. Take it from there, based on what Johnny said, he, he, he really took issue with what you had to say. Yeah, you know what? If I knew that that's how the locker room felt and they talked about me, even years after I was number one in the world, I would have been sort of in the top five of the world of professional tennis players for a few more years. But I didn't think that, okay? I'm too humble. And I felt that the rest of the, the, the field can beat me because the tennis balls are different. And I know Rafael Nadal is feeling the, exactly the same thing. The temperatures are too cold. I'm not being able to, to spin the forehand uh, without following through around my neck with my left arm. I'm going to follow through around above my head I still I can't do that. I can't win matches here. So I think that what Johnny was trying to say is that the locker room has more respect for the great players and the great champions than the champions actually realize. Because we're not playing for that reason. We're playing to feel better and to do better than the rest of the locker room. Now, I always thought, and I was humble enough to know that there's at least 15, 20 guys in the locker room that will beat me on a particular day when it's colder. So Johnny, you just let me in, uh, into the locker room world. And I, man, I wish I knew that the locker room felt that way about us, Johnny, but um, it's, it's too late now. So I will. Um, I, I'm happy that I fell from number one in the world to about 40, the fastest fall of any number one player in the world, and I made friends with everyone in the locker room, including you. I think I'm <laughs> a normal player. Well, I do. I will. I will agree with you that um, if there is a year that that he is not the clear cut favorite, it would be this year. And, and with Novak having won the Italian. Um, and his record this whole year and the confidence he has, he does have to be the favorite. So, um, and he plays so great against Nadal as well. 
So um, it'll be interesting to see. It's going to be a lot of fun. I know you're going to be calling the matches for Eurosport, and I'm really, really excited for this week's, uh, for the next two weeks' tennis at the French Open. Dominic Team, Dominic Team, finals U.S. Open against Alexander Zverev. What, what did we think about that match? I called it, and I thought it was just absolutely a choke fest. And it was great because it was intriguing and the guys cared. And I love it. I don't care about the level. What did you think, Andy, as a a tennis fan? Well, I obviously thought it was great theater and great drama. And as you said in our previous podcast, it made for a great U.S. Open to know that we would see players that would give everything that those guys gave, even without fans in the stands. They still realized that they were playing for a U.S. Open title, and we saw it in a lot of matches, and we saw a lot of drama and a lot of emotional swings. We saw everything from Tsitsipas and Borna to what you termed as the best tennis match in the entire U.S. Open, which was Naomi Osaka versus Jennifer Brady. And then you get to this final, and these guys are literally crawling on their elbows and knees across the finish line and team is cramping in the fifth set breaker and Zverev serves for the match at five, three, and he can't hold and team serves for the match at six, five in the fifth and he can't hold and teams walking around on one leg and in the tiebreaker and Zverev can't put him away and Zverev's hitting second serves that don't reach 70 miles an hour. So there was just lots of things to make a guy like me feel better about myself who have choked away more tennis matches than I care to remember, uh, but which is something that you guys can't even fathom is kind of the things that I went through in junior tennis because of the level that you guys reached. And all I could do is just stand there in awe of that my entire life. So it made me feel a sense of their humanness uh, in, in watching that match. And, and, and talking about Osaka and Brady, we would be remiss not to in going into this French Open turn it back over to you guys to say what effect will these conditions have on the women's field and what did we learn from the U.S. Open that we might sort of use to forecast what might happen in the French Open, obviously with the big story still being, after all these majors, Serena going after number 24 and trying to tie Margaret Court. Well, I, I mean, it's clear in our minds I've, that, that, that Serena is going to have a difficult time winning this event. Um, she would have a difficult time even if she was playing her best and in her best shape. Um, I think that the clay is not her best surface, so I, I, don't, I don't think you can pick her to win this event. Um, Halep, having won the Italian, has got to be one of the favorites. She's playing fabulous tennis. And and as we've seen in women's tennis, we, you know, people come out of the woodwork and, and, uh, and that's what's been so great about women's tennis is it's gotten so much deeper than it has, has been in years past. So we might see a surprise semifinalist or finalist or even a winner that, that comes out of nowhere. I mean, Kenan, you would have hoped would be playing better, but she hasn't been playing well. Um, Brady could, could surprise us. Um, you know, Pliskova is a, is a great player. She could do really well, but I, I would think that maybe Halep is the favorite right now for that for uh, to win the event. Yeah, no, I would I would have to agree. I think that the on the women's side, it's uh, it's a clay court that is a, a lot slower, 
Um, we've got the roof, so if it starts raining on Philippe Chatrier, the Senate court, they're going to close the roof, but it's still going to play a lot slower because the temperatures are colder. And I think slower um, means that you have to be a great ball striker on the women's side to win the event. I don't think you can defend your way to the title. Whereas on the men's side, um, the guys move just a little bit better. They can cover the court. And I think you can defend your way to the title, which is what I'm assuming Novak Djokovic is thinking. Uh, and Rafa Nadal um, is not going to be able to be aggressive enough because it's too slow and too heavy. But Simona Halep does both. She's aggressive. She defends well. Um, she, she could have a problem against Garabinia Muguruza or Karolina Pliskova. Or I would say, although Johnny thought not, I would say Serena Williams in a way. I think she finds her time in Paris romantic. I think she likes Paris. She has a place where she lives sometimes. Um, I think she will be dangerous because there is absolutely no pressure on her. But uh, again, I really, really hope Jennifer Brady wins the tournament. I thought Jennifer Brady at the US Open, absolutely the best player in the world on the women's side. And I, man, I hope she wins the Grand Slam soon. Well, I'm not sure that a romantic environment necessarily equates to a French Open title, but what do I know? You won three of them. It to me. All right. So let me ask you this, though, Matt. Uh, and, and, and by the way, as far as Serena goes, my suspicion would be that her chances are better with with less expectation on her, which then equates to less pressure on her. So maybe that bodes well for her as well. But let's finish with this. The thought of winning a match at Roland Garros on Philippe Chatrier under these conditions. To me, the thought of winning one tennis match in a best-of-five-set format seems like a monumental task, let alone winning more than one, let alone winning seven to win the tournament. Talk about the physical and emotional grind. What does it take out of you to go the distance to win one match, match, let alone to win an entire title? Yeah, you don't really look at uh, the whole tournament, Andy. Um, You look at one match. And every match is its own individual marathon race. You don't think about, oh, i got to save energy for tomorrow or the next day. You just play the guy across the net, and you have about two hours. Uh, you know that before the match. You have about two hours into the match before you have to panic, meaning changing your tactics or going to a, a loose or strung racket. You really have a lot of time And because you have a lot of time on your hands, you don't panic compared to Wimbledon or the U.S. Open or the Australian Open. So uh, um, it seems more physical to people that haven't done it than to us. To me, the French Open physically is easily the easiest to, um, to stay fit and recover because clay is easier. We all know that to slide on than a hard court. Um, and mentally, it's more relaxing to know that you have all this time. And now I'm up a break in the fourth and I'm up two sets to one. <sighs> I can breathe. So, yeah, I don't I think that that's why Rafa has been able to win 12 times, because really the stress level for Roger Federer to win Wimbledon eight times. Now, that's another complete different situation. So, Johnny, I think we just figured it out as Americans because you're shaking your head as he's saying how easy it is. I'm shaking mine like, got to be joking that he's talking about, ah, it's easy. I didn't say it was easy. Well, you kind of did. 
I've got the tape, but Johnny, talk about how not easy it is to go win a tennis match at the French Open. Certainly you would know. Well, the way the way I've always viewed the French Open is that it's the most grueling slam. And and Matt's has, has uh, contradicted that. He and says he it's even easy. just yeah, and, and I God. think it's because he's an anomaly where he never got tired he's a freak. and he never and he never got nervous. But I mean, the French Open the French Open coming from from my viewpoint is the most grueling slam to win because it, it the points are longer. The Americans are going over there and playing these European guys that never miss a shot and and they just will stay on the court forever. So to me the points are longer. It, it's more of a grind. It's it ta- it takes much more effort to win a point. And so to me the French Open is is the toughest slam to win. I know Matt's has disagreed with that, but I also think it's cuz Matt's comes from a place where he's never got tired and he never got nervous. So he loved playing on the clay. So I don't, I think it comes from a different viewpoint, you know? He watched Borg win the damn thing six times. So he just assumes, well, that's, that's just what we do. Well, let me, let, let me ask Matt's a question back to it. And it, and it goes along the lines of him getting nervous, not getting nervous because we talked about what, what we all might agree is the biggest choke grand slam final that we've ever seen with team and Zverev, and Zverev really did have the match on his racket, and he, and he should have won that match, and he didn't win it. And I think Nurse played a huge part in that. We saw it with his serve. Mats, how does a guy at that level, a top-five-ranked player, a potential Grand Slam champion, how does a guy get over a, a defeat like that? I mean, how long does that something like that stay with him? Could it affect him his whole career? How does he bounce back from that? Yeah, so I coached Marat Safin, who beat Pete Sampras in the 2000 U.S. Open final in three straight sets. I think it was three, four, and four. And he literally closed his eyes and ripped every ball, and they all went in. Uh, I coached him a year after, and that was the worst thing that ever happened to him, is the fact that he allowed himself to risk it all, and it worked. He compared every match from that point on in the, into the future compared every match to that match. Well, I can play better. I just beat Pete Sampras last year, whatever. And I say, well, you're not allowed to. So I think for me, Sasha Zverev, Alexander Zverev, was too loose to play a final. He played too well early on. He was going for forehands inside in winners off of the team slice backhand, and he was making it for about an hour and a half. You're not allowed to do that as a tennis player. And that's what I think people need to realize that I get the question all the time. I think we talked about it the last time. What do I, what, what am I doing wrong? I play great until four all, then I can't play because you have to be nervous early on. And Sasha Zverev, if he has a coach that tells him you better forget that match and you are never allowed to be that loose in a finals of a grand slam again, ever in fact, in any match, start out trying to figure out your opponent first rather than seeing if you have it in you to hit this shot and that shot that usually doesn't work. And he did that, and it doesn't work in the end. That's why I like team. Team was nervous. He was tense. And he, the, the victory for team came not in the fifth set. It came in the second set. Zveda was up 6-2, 5-2. Team broke back and, and held serve, and it became 5-4. And then, yes, 
Svetlana won the set 6-4. But Tim got his teeth into the match. And I think that's, that's where Sasha Sver, hopefully his coach, tells him that that was the worst absolute tactical mistake you've ever made is to be loose in the Grand Slam final. You're not allowed to be loose. But I think he will realize that. I think team's going to win, I don't know, four or five majors because of the way he won it. There you go. He is Mats Vlander, and he has gotten his teeth into many a match at the French Open, and we'll be getting them into many a match at the French Open this year as he will be on the call for Eurosport. We are in the midst of the 2020 French Open. It's finally upon us. I'm also joined by Johnny Levine, the two-time All-American at the University of Texas, who had a pretty good go of it at the French Open in 1989, as I mentioned earlier, making the quarterfinals of the doubles with Eric Carita the same year. He also got to the quarterfinals of the doubles at the U.S. Open, so a good year for Johnny in 89. And what was I doing? Oh, it was a good year for me in 89 as well. I made it to the finals of the men's Open doubles at the Houston Coca-Cola Open with Freddie Bianco. So a good year for all of us in 89. And uh, thanks, everybody. We want to thank Robin Soderling for joining us earlier in the show. I'm AZ, along with Mats and Johnny. This is KickServeRadio.com on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we'll be back with you real soon. Enjoy the action from Roland Garros. <laughs>